yourselves therefore and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. The last four words in the Hebrew express these two words. Jehovah Kadesh. Jehovah Kadesh. This is the next compound name of God that we're looking at in the progressive revelation that God gave of himself to Israel. I have read that the book of Leviticus is one of the first books a Jewish child would read. I suppose we could understand that. The multitude of sacrificial laws and ways of the first few chapters of this book, not only when to sacrifice, what to sacrifice, and for the cause of sacrifice, the dietary laws, the the animals you can eat and the animals you cannot eat, getting that all straight, and then the regulations in the latter half of the book about separation, about being separate to God. Perhaps it was because they needed to uh, know all these details, but it's probably the last book that a Christian reads, isn't it? Because of those details, and it's easy as you start reading it to lose focus and have to start over again and say, what did I just read? But God reveals himself as Jehovah Kadesh, right in the center of the sacrificial system, the regulations, and the dietary laws that are unpacked in this book. Why? We might try to answer this morning. Why here in this book where God is making a separation between Israel and the laws he gives them apart from all the other laws? We hope to answer that question and others this morning. A simple outline would be based on verses 7 and 8, which would go like this. Because the Lord is holy, that's our first point, the Lord is holy, the Lord makes you holy. That's the second point, because He is Jehovah Kadesh. Therefore, the Lord says to you, you be holy. Very simple outline. The Lord is holy. The Lord makes you holy, that's the compound name, the Lord sanctifies you, therefore the Lord says, the Lord demands that you be holy. What is that? What does that mean? You can see the importance of the subject if the God who is holy demands that we be holy. Holy. So first of all, let's look just at the statement, the Lord is holy. He says that, I, the Lord, am your God. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God, which is holy. So it's implied in our text. I am holy, says the Lord. What does that mean? Well, there are typically two categories of the word holy that we think about. And the first one we most often think about is the idea of holy living or righteousness or godliness. And that would be correct. We find this in the New Testament. We've often looked at First Peter, where Peter would say, as obedient children, and then he defines that in the negative, we, we refrain from fashioning ourselves according to former lust when we were in our ignorance, but as he which has called you as holy, be holy. So holiness in part is to be obedient children. It's to live in obedience to God. That's part of the meaning. Or Titus chapter 2, where Titus, or Paul rather, speaking to Titus, says, The grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who that is, Jesus, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify, hagios, make holy, unto himself a people zealous, a peculiar people that belong to him, zealous of good works. So living godly and righteously in this present world is to be purified and to do good works. So that, that's another facet of holiness that we think about. 
We want to live right before God. We want to live obedient before God. We want to live godly. We want to obey and do good deeds for the glory of God the Father. But that's not the primary meaning of the word holy in the Bible. And we think of God being holy. We don't think of God doing good deeds. At least that's not the first thing we should think about. The word holy simply means separate or other. It means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be sacred, which means to be dedicated, devoted to a purpose. To say that God is holy is simply to say He is separate. Now think of the ways that the word holy is used as an adjective in the Bible. Almost anything can be holy. In the Bible, when you think about it, Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, holy ground. How is dirt holy? Right? In Leviticus 23, holy convocations or holy assemblies. And of course, there's the holy tabernacle, the holy temple, the holy land, Israel. Still referred that way today, isn't it? Holy angels, holy women in the New Testament, holy men, holy faith, and my favorite, a holy kiss. What is that? What separates that from all other kisses, right? If it's holy, it's separate, it's other, it's set apart. Let's think of a few of those. First, a holy ground. You know, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, when Moses went up to the mountain, he wanted to see why the bush burned, but it was not consumed. When he arrived and seeing the bush burning, God spoke to him out of the bush and said, Take your sandals from off your feet, for the ground that you stand on is holy ground. Does that mean then that the ground now that Moses was standing upon was separate in and apart from the other ground, in that it was sanitized, there were no impurities in it, there were no insects or worms in the dirt? I don't think that's the case. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. As R.C. Sproul once said about that text and about holiness, when the touch of God is on it, it's separate, it's distinct, it's uncommon, it's unique, it is holy ground or a holy kiss when God's purpose is upon it it separates it from every other kind of kiss or ground and God's purpose in that occasion in Exodus 3 when Moses was standing on holy ground was God had set it apart for the divine purpose of communicating his will and who he was to Moses. So at that point, it was holy. And when God left the scene, it was no longer holy ground. Holy ground. But when we apply that to God, God is holy. God is separate. God is other. God is distinct. It has its limitations because for men and women to be holy or ground to be holy, it's separate from something to something. So the rest of the ground was common, but now holy ground is uncommon. But God is not separate from anything. He's not derived from anything. And He's not separate to something because there's nothing higher than God. For God to be holy is simply to say that God is God. In and of Himself, He is the separate, other, distinct, different God from anything else that Exists. So I want to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. You might have guessed we would go there. This is the chapter that is often looked at when we think about God being holy because there He announces, or the seraphims, that He is the thrice holy God. Isaiah chapter 6, if you would like to turn there.
Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. You might remember that Uzziah was one of the better kings of Israel. There were many advancements that were made under his rule. He had developed machines of war. There was great prosperity, and the nation militarily was in a, a very good place. And then Uzziah out of pride, went into the temple of God to do sacrifice, and God struck him with leprosy. And later he died, and this year he died, a great king. Now you can imagine if a great president died, one where most everybody on both sides of the aisle thought he was a pretty good president. What shock it would bring if it was an abrupt death like Uzziah. The questions that would be asked, what do we do now? Who's going to be the next president? Who's going to take over for such a good president? Well, God makes known to Isaiah just who's upon the throne. It was in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, which speaks of his authority. Uzziah had authority, but this is a throne of all thrones. A throne of authority. It is high and lifted up. It is high and that is above all thrones, but it's lifted up and that it is over all thrones. The throne that the Lord sits on is not a human throne. It's a throne that is over every principality, every power, every dominion, and every might. Far above, not just lifted up, but exalted above every other throne. Isaiah sees the Lord in a vision. He's sitting on this throne... It's in the temple, and it's high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Train there is just a robe. A robe is a symbol that expresses about a king his dignity, his honor, his importance, and his worth. Well, God's robe fills the temple, expressing God's worth, his honor, his dignity, his majesty. And I think it only fills the temple because that's where the Lord is sitting in this vision. If He were outside the temple, I suppose His train would fill the universe to express His importance, His dignity, His highness, His worth. And then verse 2, Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain He covered His face, and with twain He covered His feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Seraphims. You will not find the English word seraphims anywhere else in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. Now some of the Hebrew or Greek words may be referring to them. But you will not find the word seraphims anywhere but right here in this text. Perhaps this was their sole purpose. Perhaps this is what they did. Perhaps this is what they existed for. But this is where they're found. Four observations about the holiness of angels. And then to look at that in relation to the thrice holy God in this text. We're talking about the Lord is holy. And what does that mean? That He's separate and He's apart. Four observations. First, power. These angels are powerful. When they cried one to another, the post, the threshold of the door shook. Powerful. One angel, don't know if it's a seraphim, one angel killed 185,000 soldiers in one evening, Assyrian soldiers, and then hovered between heaven and earth with a sword in his hand. Just... No problem. In Judges, or in Genesis rather, one angel, or two or three, with Lot, struck the men of Sodom with blindness. Just, you're blind. Angels are powerful. That's the first observation. Second, position. They are far above us, are they not? In God's created order, angels are higher than us. I think we would all agree with that. They are way above us. They have a position 
that is far exceeding ours in terms of what they are and who they are and who we are. Position. Peculiarity, which means rarity. These are rare. Have you ever seen one? No, you haven't. I know people have said they've seen them in human form, and I do not contest that, but you haven't seen this kind, right? Peculiar. Can you fly? Can you disappear? No. They are extremely peculiar, rare beings. And then purity. They're pure. These are elect angels. Now the non-elect angels rebelled and sinned against God. They kept not their first estate, but were cast down in chains of darkness. But these angels kept their first estate. They are not sinners. They are not rebellious. They're doing exactly what God has ordained them to do in crying out to this thrice holy God. So they are pure, powerful. Their position is high, and their peculiarity is that they're rare. And yet, they cover their face and they cover their feet. Why? Why would these angels so far above us have their face covered and their feet covered as they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts? Well, the point is, beloved, they cannot look upon the face of God and they cannot expose their feet to the thrice holy God. Because you see, the one thing that you and I have in common with seraphims, which are very uncommon, the one thing that you have in common with every Olympic athlete that you may have watched this week, as rare as they are, and as they excel above everybody in this room, yet there is one thing that you have in common with them, And you have in common with the angels. And that you are creatures just like they are. That creates a gulf. A cosmic chasm between everything and God. Because He is underived, uncreated, eternal God. And so they can't look upon the holy God. Yet they are holy. They can't expose their feet. Before God, because the one thing that connects us with the dust that we came from, and yes, dust, if they were created from dust that they came from, is that everything has been created except for the Holy God. This speaks of God's transcendence. It's a word that means it exceeds and surpasses normal human experience. It's so beyond us. It's so out there. We can't get there. It surpasses everything. And these angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. When God wanted to give us a a fingertip sample of His holiness, He points to the fullness of the earth and the glory thereof. As some men pointed out, it appears that God's Glory is what is visible about His holiness. We might have expected Him to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His holiness. But perhaps, apparently, God's glory is when His holiness is put on display in the fullness of the earth. And what do you see in the earth? Just a small picture of God's distinctness, His utter uniqueness, his being in a class all by himself that no one can approach, no one can get close to, no one can touch it. Even God himself in Isaiah 40, 25 says, To whom will you compare me that we may be equal, saith the Holy One. Go ahead, try it. Try to find something in the universe that you can even begin To compare to a facet of God. To anything about God. There is nothing, beloved. This is what sets God totally separate and apart from angels, from men, from creation, from everything. 
And the fullness of God's glory in the earth is but a small expression of His uniqueness, of His one-of-a-kindness, of His purity. So if we could take a stab at the, the holiness of God, we would say it's God's utter, unique transcendence that is infinite, it's measureless, and it's valuable. We could call it His greatness, His majesty. There, there are all kinds of words. As I thought through how to express this, it was rather frustrating because there's not a word. The, the, the English language is totally insufficient. There's not a language on the planet that we could use that could adequately express the transcendent God that is, is so far beyond us that we can't comprehend it, we can't measure it, we can't grasp it. And so we, we grapple with human language to try to express God's unique, rare, one of a kindness, His beauty. The beauty of creation comes from the beauty of God. And when you find something that's rare, one of a kind, beautiful, it endures forever. It's highly valuable. People want it. We all want that, don't we? We want something that lasts. We want something beautiful. We want something valuable. We want something that won't fall apart. We want something very rare. But everything you can own from the richest of the richest still has something in common with you and what you own. Now theirs may be far more rare and valuable than yours, but both are created. And the holy God is an underived, uncreated God. And that makes him holy. To be God is to be holy. Now, with that in mind, that brings us to the transition of the second point. The Lord is holy. The Lord makes you holy. Now that should be astounding to you. It is the aim of God to make sinners holy. Now this explains partly why we find this compound name in Leviticus. The sacrificial system that is introduced there is insufficient. That was what was being communicated to the people. Over and over and over again. Those sacrifices will not make you holy. They can't do it. And then the laws. God said you shall keep them and do them. That's holiness. They should have known short order. There's just no way to keep these laws. And the sacrifice proved it day in and day out. Why do we need to sacrifice again? Because you trespassed the very law that God said you should keep. So right here in Leviticus, right after redemption, because sanctification always follows redemption, we find this name, Jehovah Kadesh. The Lord who is holy is the Lord who aims to make you holy. Now here's the question, and we're going we're to stay in Isaiah 6 a little longer. How is it that if the holy angels have to cover their faces in the presence of God and cannot look upon God, these pure angels, that you, a sinner, could ever look upon God in peace? Ever. Right? Because He is Jehovah Kadesh. That's why, isn't it? All right, look at what, back in Isaiah 6, what uh, Isaiah says next, beginning in verse 5. He has this vision. Uh, the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke in verse 4. Now in verse 5, we see this. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged expiated, removed, placated, propitiated, pacify is what the word purge means. Now why is the coal laid to his lips? 
We know that's not really the problem with man, isn't it? It's the heart. Because like Isaiah, the language of unclean lips comes from an unclean heart. In Romans chapter 3, when Paul would pack, unpack the depravity of man, he would start with the heart that nobody seeks God because nobody understands God. That's a heart issue, understanding, a mental issue. And then from there, he goes right to the mouth. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongue they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Throat, tongue, lips, mouth. Coming from where? A heart that doesn't seek or understand or treasure God. So to touch the lips with a live coal is an expression that the heart needs cleansing. Now we know... Uh, a live coal is a burning coal. It's hot just to touch the lips. That may cauterize the lips, but it really doesn't take away sin, does it? Because this is a spiritual transaction here, not physical. And it's symbolizing, as the angel says, the forgiveness of sins, the purging of sins. Two observations in this section about the Lord making you holy and how He does that. Two observations. First, the live coal that touched his lips, and secondly, the king that he saw. The live coal and the king that he saw sitting on the throne. Live is burning. Must have been very hot. The angel could not apparently touch it with his own hands, but took tongs to grab the coal and then touched it to the lips of Isaiah. Now in Leviticus chapter 9, God himself lit the altar. This is the altar, the burnt sacrifice, right outside the temple. The vision is in the temple. So apparently the seraphim goes to the uh, altar of a burnt sacrifice, grabs the coal, and touches it to his lips. God lit that altar. And in Leviticus chapter 6, that altar was never to cease from burning. The fire was to be kindled on that altar perpetually. No one was to put it out, at least no man was to ever put it out. The live coal, the flame on the altar in the Bible symbolizes three things. The jealousy of God, the judgment of God, and the wrath of God. You can see all these in Exodus chapter 20 when God gave the law on Mount Sinai. He would say, For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? I'm a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.24 Puts the imagery of jealous with fire. I'm a jealous God. I'm a consuming fire. So the fire that consumes the sacrifice on the altar for which live coal was taken is a symbol of God's jealousy. Because God Himself says He is a consuming fire. Next, in Exodus 20, what does the jealousy of God do? Visiting iniquity. Upon the fathers, upon the children of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me. So God's jealousy, represented by fire, then moves and acts to judge sinners by visiting upon them their own iniquity. And then what does God do when He judges iniquity? Exodus 20 verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For I will not hold him guiltless who does so. Guiltless means punishment. The jealousy of God is a consuming fire. Therefore he judges people with their own iniquity. Which means he will punish them with his wrath forever. Wrath. Now if you were making up rules for a society in which you were a king. Would you put that in the top five? If you take the name of God in vain, you die forever. Because His name is holy. There's a reason we call profanity profane. Because profane means common. And to treat God's name as if it's common. And to attach a, a word to it. Or to, or to use it in a way that's common. Is to desecrate. The infinite holy name of God that's separate and distinct and apart. For which anybody that desecrates that name 
is punished with the wrath of God forever. We don't look at it that way, do we? If we want a a symbol of, of the value of God's holiness, we look at the wrath of God that lasts forever. That 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 shakes us at our core, that causes us to tremble. Why must wrath last so long? Because of the infinite value of the name of God for which sin is against. We can't understand, can we, the holiness of God. So punishment must be made forever because God's value is infinite. And so the live coal, the burning coal off of the altar that perpetually burned as a symbol that consumed the sacrifice over and over again was a symbol of jealousy, of judgment, and of wrath. How then does that Symbolize the touching of the coal and just his sin is gone. It's purged. God's wrath is pacified. It's placated. It's propitiated. Well, I'm suggesting because of the vision that Isaiah sees. It's the one he sees sitting on the throne. And you have to go to John 12 to see this. In John 12, John says... Though He did, Jesus, many miracles among them, yet they did not believe on Him. That the saying of Isaiah, the prophet, may come to pass or be fulfilled, which He said, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now that's Isaiah 53. That was fulfilled when they rejected the message of the Messiah, Jesus, although He did many miracles among them. And then John says... Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah also said this, He had blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. Now that's Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9. So if Isaiah 53, Isaiah 6, and both are being applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then John says this, This said Isaiah, when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah said, he had blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. When? When he saw his glory, right here in Isaiah 6. Who? Whose glory did he see? The Lord Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity is seated, seated in the throne that Isaiah sees in that position clearly speaks to the deity of Jesus Christ. If, if anybody questions the deity of Christ, that's the first place you go and their mouths will hang open and they will say nothing except things that make no sense. The person sitting on the throne that directed the seraphim to take the live coal and touch it to his lips, according to John, is the Messiah, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, although the name has not been given yet, Jesus. So with the second observation, this is what it means, this is what it takes for God to make you holy. What Jesus did, He got down from that throne and exchanged that throne for a body. Right? A body thou hast prepared me. He stepped down from the throne that he was high and exalted upon and seated. And he exchanged the throne for a body. Secondly, he stepped down from the throne that Isaiah sees, because we know this is Jesus Christ, and he exchanges that throne for the form of a servant. Philippians chapter 2. He became a servant. From a king exalted, He came down to serve you. To serve your holiness. The third thing, He stepped down from the throne that He was seated upon and exchanged the cry of seraphims, Holy, 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 for the cry of sinful men. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. 
This is how the Lord makes you holy, beloved. All the sacrifices of Leviticus, all the blood that was spilled, was pointing to the fact that this king, king of glory, who is holy, 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 who is separate, who is undefiled, who is separate from sinners, stepped off the throne of glory and was crucified to make you holy. That is the wondrous news of Leviticus. That's the point of Leviticus. The unholy and the holy. And the holy God makes unholy sinners holy in His sight because Jesus shed His blood for them. That's astounding. That ought to amaze us. That ought to thrill us. That Jesus would love you to the point The sacrifice that was required was His own to make you holy. So the Lord is holy, therefore the Lord makes you holy. And so there are two other things we're introduced and we're going to stop here this morning and get to the last point of you being holy next Sunday. So when Jesus makes you holy, there's two ways this holiness comes to you. First, it comes permanently Then it comes progressively. The Lord makes you permanently holy. That's why there's no need for sacrifice ever again. And then the Lord makes you holy progressively. That means we are are growing in holiness, whatever that is, as we look at next week. We are to grow by faith in holiness on the basis of something we are permanently. If we miss this... And sometimes we do, and Christians do. If we get this wrong, it leads us in one of two directions. First, it leads us to think our obedience is really earning something from God. The Bible calls that legalism. That is, what we're doing, we're doing it to earn favor with God, or we're doing it to please men. Because like the Jews, we want the praises of men. It will lead in that wrong direction. Or it will lead you to despair and then to idolatry. Notice in our text, sanctify yourselves therefore. Which means on the basis of what preceded it, which was going a whoring after Molech. Molech is the first Canaanite god mentioned by name in the Bible. Now Rachel took her father's household gods, and they're the gods of Egypt, which were unnamed. The first named idol in the Bible is Molech. And what comes after it? Sanctify yourselves, therefore. Out of despair, it leads us to pursue the pleasures of the world. So we pursue the pleasures of men in legalism, or we pursue the pleasures of the world, and we hang on to a kind of grace, which we think allows us to continue in sin. Those are the two directions we go in if we don't get this right. The Lord that sanctifies us by His death is a permanent sanctification that leads to a progressive sanctification. And the progression proves the permanence. See? And if, and if we don't think of it that way, it confuses us and it leads us in the wrong direction. So let me close going to Hebrews 10 on this point. Where the Hebrew writer speaking to the Jewish people, the Hebrews, about this very thing is going to make this point in Hebrews chapter 10. So they were considering going back to sacrifices and back to the Levitical priesthood. Jesus satisfied the law. The priesthood is over and done with. And now the fire on the altar was put out. It was put out in 70 AD, wasn't it? And he's telling them it's about to be put out. It's over. Christ has arrived. And so he says in chapter 10 verse 1, For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there into perfect. Verse 2 of chapter 10. For then would they have not ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Why? Because it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. When I was a young lad, my dad took me to a processing plant where chickens were slaughtered. We went into the slaughter area and there were chickens hanging by shackles. Tons of them. 
And they went through a shock system, and then there was a knife that cut the jugular. There was a man standing. He had boots up to his knees and a knife in his hand. He looked back at me and smiled. His job was to make sure that there was a good clean cut. He was standing knee-deep in blood. Knee-deep in blood. The priests in Leviticus are always standing in blood. Knee-deep in blood. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. If they could have, would they not have ceased to have been offered? Now that should have signaled the Jewish person, like seeing all the chickens on the shackle, why are we keep killing all these birds every time there's a sin? Wouldn't it make sense that if we're really restored, if we're really forgiven, it just takes one sacrifice and it's over? And that was the point that was being communicated in the sacrificial system in Leviticus. The blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient. Why? Verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, that is Christ, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. You didn't desire it, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, this is from Psalm 40, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Now the God who instituted the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices goes on record to say, I have no pleasure in that. I have no delight in that. Why not? Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Above, when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, Levitical priesthood, Levitical sacrifices, that he may establish the second. What's the second? I come to do thy will. So the conclusion, verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus permanently, once for all. Why weren't their blood sufficient? God had no pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats. Two reasons. It required a human body. So what did Jesus say? A body you prepared for me. That's why he came down off the throne. A body was prepared, which means he didn't have a body, pre-incarnate Christ. He took on a body and took upon him the form of a servant. That's one reason God had no pleasure in the sacrifices of the animals. They didn't have a body. Secondly, they didn't have a will. By the which will we have been permanently made holy by the blood of Christ. Psalm 40 says, I delight to do thy will. Animals can't delight in being sacrificed, can they? They just went like dumb animals to a slaughter. No affection, no will, no delight in God. God has no pleasure in His sacrifice that has no pleasure in His holy name. Because that is what is being atoned for. Just like a mother has no pleasure in the son that brings her a gift on her birthday. And when she asks why he did it, he says, Dad made me do it. I mean, he, he said, you've got to do it. That does not honor mother. Does it? Nor is a, is a wife honored and pleased with the husband that sacrifices to have a great meal and a great gift on anniversary when he asks, why do you do it? And he comes up with some lame answer like, I thought it was the obligation of a husband to do things like that. She would have no pleasure in that. You know why? Because there's no love in that at all, is there? There's no love for God in an animal sacrifice. But there is in the sacrifice of the second person of the Trinity. That's why Isaiah 53.10 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was a sweet-smelling savour in the nostrils of God. Because the pleasure of Christ, the will of Christ, which means desire and pleasure was delighting in the name of God and the honor of God and willing to step down off the throne of glory and the cries of the seraphim saying, Holy, 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 to the cries of wicked men saying, 
crucify Him. Why? Because of you and because of me. Because of sin. And what's the glorious news of the pleasure of God and the sacrifice of Christ? You have been sanctified, made holy, once for all. Once is a perfect tense verb. It just means forever. It's over. It's done. It's permanent. You don't have to wake up tomorrow and say, I wonder if, if, if God accepts me. You're holy by virtue of the fact that you've been united to the Holy God. And the Holy Spirit has come and made resident in your heart. And He'll never go away. It's complete. It's permanent. So you don't have to be a legalist to try to please God and earn something from God. It's been earned. It's been done. It's been sacrificed. Now what keeps you from idolatry and going after Moloch? They did that. They went right after Moloch. They even offered their seed. The way that they offered infants to the god Moloch is repulsive. Just the fact of killing an infant. It's terrible. You read about it. Why did they do that? Because of the pleasure and the entertainment and the draw of idolatry of the other gods. We just do it under another name, don't we? Well, we think we're better. We just kill babies and and call it, what? An embryo. At least when they did it, they did it in the open. They said, no, we're, we're killing our children. We put it under a facade. We've gone after the God of Molech in our day. Slaughtering babies. And the root is the same, isn't it? It's the pleasure derived from living life on our own terms without a burden that people called children. That's what they say. That's not what the church says, is it? The God of Molech. What will keep us from the God of Molech? Well, listen. The writer of Hebrew goes on. Okay, you're made holy. The God that sanctifies you, Jehovah Kadesh, has made you holy by the second person's sacrifice. It's His will. It was His pleasure. God satisfied. Verse 11. And every priest standing daily, ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Now, what's the writer doing? The priesthood you're going back to is antiquated. You know, you had another priest and another priest and another priest and more sacrifices and more sacrifices. Well, this man, after one sacrifice, sat down. The priest was never allowed to sit down when he went into the temple. There were no chairs there because his work was never finished. This priest sat down forever Because of one sacrifice. So you don't need that priesthood. It's gone. You don't need that sacrifice. Don't go back to it. Christ has arrived. Now note this. Verse 14. Because by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are being sanctified. Now there's progressive. And permanent. You're perfected forever. It's over. It's done. Who's it done for? Only those that are progressively being sanctified. Or... That are pursuing holiness. See. What shall we say? Shall we continue in grace? That grace may abound? God forbid. The very Holy Spirit has been given. To confirm. And to assure us of permanent holiness. So that nothing we can do can take us out of that holiness. And nothing we can do can gain more holiness. We've been united to the holy God. And. Now God aims Jehovah Kadesh to make you holy progressively, day by day, by showing you your sins and working in you to be an obedient person. Not a sinless person, but an obedient person. This is the aim of Jehovah Kadesh. This is what he revealed in Leviticus to point to the perfect sacrifice, the permanent sacrifice And the work of Jehovah in progressive sanctification. Now what's the upshot of that? You ought to be vitally interested in being holy. That should be more important to you than what you eat tomorrow. Because it gives you deep assurance. 
with God that your holiness is permanent. Not working for it. Not trying to gain it. It's not diminishing. It's in the law book of heaven. It's in, the, it's in heaven itself. You're right with God. You're holy. And the fruit of that, my assurance of that, is not that I don't sin anymore. It's not that I don't say the wrong thing anymore. It's not that I don't do the wrong thing anymore. It's that I'm pursuing holiness in God. And I'm confessing. And I experience conviction. And I'm going after God. And I want to exalt His holy name. And I want to live for the value of that name. I want to treasure that name. I want to love that name more. Because God has implanted within you the very desire to be holy. And I end with what the Holy Spirit says next in this book. Hebrews 10, verse 15. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that He had said before. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and their minds. I will write them and their sins and iniquities. I will remember no more. So if there's remission, there's no more sin to remember. So the sacrifice is complete. But also, the covenant is, He put the law in your heart and in your mind. Why did He do that? It's a quote from Jeremiah. And Hebrews chapter 8, the Holy Spirit had already said it, that you would know God, that you would know Him. See? So the permanent holiness that God has given you and awakened you to is carried out by the Holy Spirit in you, writing God's law in your heart and mind. So as Hebrews 8 says, that you would know God. See, that's the whole point. Of implanting that knowledge is that God aims to make you holy. Without it, you don't see the Lord. That is, without permanent holiness and without the progressive, that simply proves it, it attests to the reality that you've been made holy. That's why you have the Holy Spirit. And that's why you know God, that in the knowledge of God, we would press on to be holy. Which brings us to the last point next Sunday. Therefore, be holy. This is why He saved you. This is why you have the Holy Spirit. This is why you know God. The Lord is holy. The Lord will make you holy. Therefore, sanctify yourselves. How does that work? How is it that Jehovah Kadesh sanctifies you, but you sanctify you? And we hope to see how those come together next Sunday. Let's pray.